So, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being here this morning. And if you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 50, that's where we're going to be hanging out, as Eric so faithfully pointed us to earlier. Uh, Just a little introduction. For thousands of years, the Psalms have served God's people by being uh, a place where we find words that help us express what we're thinking to God. And, And it meets us in all kinds of situations. Times of trouble, you're in trouble, you're anguish, anxiety, got a psalm. Uh, in sorrow, uh, got a psalm. In celebration, got a psalm. Got a desperate, you're in your desperate straits, got a psalm. Re- you want to repent, got a psalm for that. The psalms give us words that comfort us and encourage us as we, as we come to God with our fears and our sorrows and our confusion and our joys. Words like this, save me, O God. That's in the Psalms. All these are in the Psalms. That's a good thing to pray. It's okay to pray that. You don't have to pretend like you have it all together all the time. Preserve me, O God. Incline your ear to me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. Lead me, O Lord. Teach me your way, O Lord. I trust you, O Lord. Be exalted. I give thanks to you, O Lord. I love you, O Lord all these different kinds of emotions and responses, and we love the Psalms because we can relate so often to what they're saying or thinking or going through. I say all that to say that Psalm 50 is not one of those Psalms, (laughs) and don't want you to be shocked as as we start getting into it. It doesn't begin with our, our situation or our perspective or our thoughts. It begins with God which is where everything begins, in his eternal glory, in his majestic holiness, in his perfect beauty. It says that he shines forth in splendor, summoning all his people to hear what he has to say. That's why we've gathered here this morning, to hear what he has to say. You're going to hear my voice, but God's going to be speaking. We want to hear what he has to say. And while Psalm 73 some of you might know, says it is good to be near God. Psalm 50 suggests that it's sobering to be near God. It's a little different perspective. The scene is a a cosmic courtroom. Just imagine this massive cosmic courtroom, a theophany, God appearing, a time when God appears to his people, not unlike when he appeared to them at Mount Sinai after having delivered them through the Red Sea from the Egyptians. He's moted by his love for his people, and he wants to talk to them about something specifically. And what he wants to talk to them about, and to us about, is their worship. Here, as in many parts of the Bible, we see that that God isn't indifferent to our worship, to our gatherings. He cares. He really cares about what worship is to us. And as we work our way through the psalm, we're going to see that God-pleasing worship is marked by two things, thankful dependence and humble obedience. That's what God-pleasing worship looks like. It's marked by thankful dependence and humble obedience. And we'll see again and again in the psalm that worship doesn't begin with what we give to God, but what He has given to us. You know, I, I grew up as a Catholic, and <coughs> I, 
I was a good Catholic. Never an altar boy. Anybody grow up as a Catholic? Okay. Um, I was a good Catholic. And I, I just thought, man, I'm going to earn as many points as I can to make sure that when the final day comes, I got enough in the tank for God to say, yes, you're in. And we can start to think that. That's not biblical, by the way. <laughs> and, and this psalm is going to help us see that when, when we gather to worship God or when we do something spiritual towards Him, we're not earning points. We're not moving up some spiritual ladder. It's a gift. What we're doing is a gift. And God wants us to celebrate and be thankful for his goodness and his kindness and his grace rather than seeing our relationship with him as something that we have to always be earning. It's a real change in perspective. It doesn't mean obedience is unimportant. Far from it. But the motive behind our obedience makes all the difference. So let's turn our hearts to what God has to say to us and ask the Spirit to use his words to both convict and transform us. I'm going to read for us from the Word of God, Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. It's one of the 12 psalms written by Asaph in the Psalms. This one stands by itself. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. It means everywhere. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Then you have a Selah. Let's think about that. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, 
you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of God. Let's turn our hearts to what God has to say to us. We're going to look at it in three sections. The song unfolds in three sections. The first is the judge of worship, verses 1 through 6. First thing we see is the seriousness of the setting. This is not Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall know what. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. <coughs> Asaph makes numerous references to God and the situation that make it sound very similar to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, where God gave his people the Ten Commandments and established them as his own. Verse 3, it talks about the fire and the tempest. Same thing happened in Exodus 19, the fire and thunder and lightning. In verse 7, he says, I am God, your God, which sounds like the introduction to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, I am the Lord, your God. In verses 18 through 20, he references three of the Ten Commandments. In other words, God is still calling his people together to speak to them, and it is a sobering, solemn event. So that's the first thing we see, the, so the sobering nature of what's happening here. And then we see the supremacy of the judge. The mighty one, he's God, the Lord. It's actually three Hebrew words, El, Elohim, Yahweh. And Asaph just wants us to, to recognize the God who's speaking isn't like any, any other God. And a lot of times it's not like the God we perceive him to, me, to be. He's powerful. He's awesome. He's the covenant Lord, and in verses 4 and 6, he calls all of creation, the heavens and the earth, to testify of God's righteousness. He's saying, anywhere you look, you're going to see what you see here. God is above all, he rules it all, and he's righteous. There's no flaw in him. He's transcendent, he's not like us, he's the authority, and he's the judge. His judgment is perfect. Verse 6 says, the heavens declare it. Everything tells us he is God and no one's like him. Well, not surprisingly, his view of what we do as we worship him 
might be a little different from our perspective. When we evaluate our meetings, and, and we always do, you know, on Sunday afternoons at lunch, we're talking about, oh, what this, I like this, well, that was kind of out of tune, what about this, oh, I really love that. We're talking about, you know, whether we like the songs, the order of the service, how the preaching flowed. Here, God is doing the evaluation. And we can't argue with it, we can't ignore it, we can't hide from it, and we don't want to. We don't want to, because when God comes and says, I have something to say to you about your worship. It's to bless us. He, he wants to shower us with untold gifts, immeasurable gifts of grace. And most of all, he wants to bring us to himself, which is the greatest of all blessings. And that's what God desires to do in our worship because like the Israelites, the people of the Old Testament, God has chosen us to be his treasured possession. So we see the supremacy of the judge, but that leads to the third thing we see about this scene is just the realness of the relationship. God's not speaking to pagan nations here, to everybody. He's speaking to his people. In verse 5, he says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God is awesome and transcendent, but he's not distant. He, he's speaking to those he has called to himself in covenant, which is an agreement that, that he has made with his people. Another word for that, those people are his saints. We are, we are saints, not because of something we've done, but because God has said, you're going to be saints. We didn't make ourselves saints. God did. One commentator said, we're not chosen because we are saints. We're not chosen because God knew that we would be saints. We are chosen to be saints. So that's how God sees us. He says, you're my holy ones, and I want to talk to you. I have a real relationship with you. So God speaks. He summons. He calls. He gathers. He judges. So that, that's the scene. God's called his people together. He's the supreme judge. He says, I have a relationship with you, and I want to talk with you. So here's what he's going to say. Two things. Second point, the heart of worship. Verses 7 through 15. He's going to talk about the heart of worship. <coughs> These nine verses, 7 through 15, track on to the first three of the Ten Commandments that speak to our relationship with God himself. And in these verses, God is going to address formalism. This is what he's going after formalistic worship. Formalistic worship emphasizes outward forms, rituals, practices. It's a mindset that thinks we're doing God a favor when we gather to worship. And it pays a great deal of attention to external actions, liturgies, the right kind of clothing, performance, and not so much the heart. It's like what we can see. That's what, that's what formalistic worship is paying attention to. Israel had made a covenant of sacrifice with God, but they were misunderstanding and misinterpreting the purpose of those sacrifices. They thought, God must be pleased because we are going to so much effort to do the right things. And, and God, God's not against us doing the right things. <laughs> oh, great, we don't have to do the right things, great. Don't hear that. Verse 8 says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, I'm not coming against what you're doing. 
Your burnt offerings are continually before me. God doesn't correct their outward actions. But those sacrifices were a gift from God that enabled them to draw near to him. They were not an achievement, but a gift. And Israel's problem, and ours, is that they thought God might actually need their worship, that he might actually benefit from them and maybe even do them some kind of favor in return. We're doing this for you, God. Maybe you'll do this for us. The, the pagan nations of that time, and probably they still exist, thought that offering food and drink sacrifices to, in their pagan temples satisfied some desire in their gods for which, in response, the gods would bless them with, with good crops and good health and material prosperity. So, hey, we just keep bringing things to the, to the gods and you know, they, they'll, it'll come back to us. God's not like that. God cannot be bribed. We, we have nothing he needs. <laughs> he owns it all. We never give God anything that he's going, oh, I've never seen that before. <laughs> verse, verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine, cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, all that moves in the f- field is mine. And then if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> you know, it's like, that scripture, that passage is often used to, to say that God will provide for us, and, and that's true, he does, but that's not the point of that passage. It's, it's saying that we can't offer God anything that he didn't first give to us, and that he doesn't already own. Now let's think about that just for a moment. That, that can offend us who are prone, those of us who are prone to justify ourselves and exalt ourselves and think, God should be glad I'm on his team. <laughs> you know, there may be some of you here this morning who aren't Christian. You may be thinking, you know, as he's talking, I'm thinking, God, God might want to have me on his team. Or, or we see famous people think, wow, what God could do if he got them, as though God needed a famous person to spread the gospel. Praise the Lord when famous people get converted. It's wonderful. God doesn't need them. He can, he can use them. We don't like to be told that, that our preaching or, or our voice or our musical gifting or our communication skills or our exceptional planning or our attendance isn't the most important thing about worship. We, we love to place the accent on what we do and what we bring and how we perform, how high we raise our hands, how long we pray. And it's where we typically begin when we think about worship. But God begins with his grace. And that's what he's, that's what he's reminding his people of, reminding us of. His initiative, his actions, his revelation, his spirit. He needs nothing from us. He's not desperate for our devotion. He's not needy. Our gatherings are not primarily about what we come to bring to God. It's to remind ourselves of what God has given to us. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, from him, through him, and to him are all things. And the irony is, we can think that's not all quite true, we, that God needs our worship and be totally unaware of our need for 
him. But our relationship with God has always been marked by his initiative. He's always been the one to take the first step. When Adam and Eve sinned, God called out Adam and Eve. He addressed Noah, he addressed Abraham, he addressed Moses. He's the one who took the initiative. God called his people together at Mount Sinai to give them his, his loving commands. God raised up and spoke through Samuel and David and all the prophets. God sent his son to redeem us. God sent his spirit to assure and sanctify us. God has always been the one to take the initiative in our relationship to him. We can do nothing to summon God, merit his attention, or to deserve his blessing. Although in Isaiah 66 it says, this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite of heart and trembles at my word. So yeah, God does look at the one who's humble and recognizes their need. <coughs> Which leads to the, the last part of the section. What kind of heart does God look for? Well, one marked by thankful dependence. Thankful dependence. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Whoa, what a great thing to be called to. You know what? You just want to come together and be thankful. Really? It's like Christmas morning. Every time we gather. Sacrifice thanksgiving. Perform your vows the most high. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God <coughs> is looking for our glad realization that he has done everything we need to have a relationship with him. That is amazing. And isn't it comforting to hear that when we call upon him in the day of trouble and he delivers us, that brings him glory. We have to fight this sense that we come in to a meeting and just have to look our best. You know what? None of us are that impressive. Even externally. And if you knew what was going on inside, oh my, oh my. How bad would that be? If, if all our thoughts from this previous week were projected on the screen for everybody to see. <laughs> when we call on him in the day of trouble, he says, finally, finally you're seeing the, the, like the relationship here. You're needy, I'm the provider. That's the way it works. And then he changes us in the process. It's glorious. That's the gospel. We cry out to him, we confess our weaknesses. He says, I will deliver you and you'll bring me glory. This is very similar to what Jesus was saying to the Samaritan woman in John 4 in the New Testament now. Jesus is sitting at a well with a woman who doesn't know who God is. She thinks she does. And he says to her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. That's John 4, 23 and 24. <coughs> Jesus isn't saying we have to figure out the right combination of songs and words and actions to be acceptable to God. Worshiping in spirit and truth isn't a code we have to figure out. It's, it's saying that the spirit of God enables us to worship him, and it is because of what Jesus has done, who is the truth, that we can come to God. So again, it's his initiative. And I see interpretations of that passage where you just go, it's, it's just turning it into another work we have to do. Okay, you've got to figure out the right thing to do to get to God. And 
the, right, the things we do are important. It's just if we don't recognize that God is the one who's brought it all together, it's for naught. And it's actually working against what God wants to do. He's looking for hearts of thankful dependence. Hearts that are saying, God, we have nothing, and you have given us everything in Christ, and we are so glad. So in verse 16, focus changes. So that's, that's the heart of worship. God has been saying up to now, you can't give me anything I haven't given to you first. Now he's going to address those who take gathered worship for granted. And the rest of the psalm is going to track the last six of the Ten Commandments. Those that deal with our relationship to others. So he's been dealing with our relationship to God. Now he's talking about your relationship to others. Here, he's going to speak to those who assume we can honor God with our lips and dishonor him in the way we live. So point three, the life of worship. We've looked at the judge of worship, the heart of worship. This is the life of worship, verses 16 to 23. God-pleasing worship is offered not only by those marked by thankful dependence, but humble obedience. First section was concerned about formalism. Here, God's concern is hypocrisy. Verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? This concern is rooted in the first. Christians who go through the motions of worship and think they're doing God a favor, will, he, will eventually forget what it means to honor God at all. It's a point that theologian John Webster has made. It's one of the basic, says it's one of the basic rules for understanding the Christian gospel. Grace and godliness must never be separated. Gift and call. Promise and command. Gratefulness and obedience. Always and everywhere, the gospel keeps them together. And in the next four verses, we're going to slow down a little bit, God gets specific about what, what can make our worship hypocritical. They claim to be among God's treasured possession, redeemed for his glory, but their lives are saying something different. <coughs> Verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. You don't like to be corrected. You, you don't like me to tell you what to do. Just cast my words behind you. The, the heart of hypocrisy is claiming to worship God, but not treasuring his word, which I, I love. You know, this morning, we've just gone back and again and again to God's word. And this is, what, this is what God has said. And we're responding to what he has said. And to make the point, the psalmist is going to highlight the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments as representative of all the ways God's people were disobeying and dishonoring him. Verse 18 references the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. If you see a thief... You are pleased with him. It's a kind of weird thing. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him. What, what, have you ever like seen someone steal something? Yeah, that, that's great. I like that. I like that. I said, what, what is going on? Well, I mean, stealing could include big things like, you know, robbing a bank, hijacking a car, take, you know, but it's whatever, it's taking whatever's not ours. It's, Wasting our time at work. Okay, well, maybe I could say that's nice. Or taking credit for what someone else did. Or not saying anything when the person at the checkout counter doesn't charge you for an item. And you go out, and you're outside, and you go, oh, they didn't charge me for that. Well, thank you, Lord. That's great. 
And God not only addresses what we do, but, but what we approve of in, in others and what we're attracted to and what we allow. You are pleased with them. He's getting, he's getting down deep. Same is true for what he says next, and this is from the seventh commandment. He says, you not only commit adultery, but you keep company with adulterers. You aren't bothered by pornographic or sensual images or movies. You laugh inwardly, if not outwardly, at, at jokes that mock God's design, good design for sex. You, you keep telling yourself, I won't do it again, but then you do it again. You gather with God's people on Sunday, but during the week you keep company with adulterers. It's all those thoughts that no one ever sees. God sees. He says, you're keeping company with adulterers. And then he goes on to verse 19 and 20, and they have to do with the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. <coughs> he says, you give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. He's saying, you don't put any guardrails on your speech. You say exactly what you feel and think, and in today's age, you broadcast it to the world through social media. You magnify the inconsistencies of the words of others and deny your own. You use your words like swords that pierce the hearts of others, even your friends and relatives. Asaph could have gone on to articulate all the ways that we fail to live in light of the, the grace and mercy and kindness we've received. But he goes, he goes down more to the root of all these sins and the thought that lies behind him in verse 21. He says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. One commentator said about that verse, we confuse God's patience with God's permission. We confuse God's silence with God's satisfaction. God makes it clear that it's not only what we do here that exalts him, it, it's what we do in our lives. Things like obedience, humility, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, thanksgiving. How do, how do we get... Is it possible that we could be at a place where our, our worship is hypocritical and we're not even aware of it? How do we get to that place? In verse 21, he says, you thought I was one like yourself, which actually translates, you thought I am was like you. I am is the name that God, how God revealed himself to Moses in the book of Exodus. You thought I am was just like you. We exalt ourselves to God's position and think he's, he's just like us. But he's not. He's God. And, and we aren't. And in verse 22, he says, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. No one here this morning is likely, none of us are, are likely going to be accused of cursing God. Maybe, I don't know, slandering God, despising him. But we could all be accused of forgetting him. And that's all it takes. 
we forget that He is the mighty one. He is God. He is the Lord. We forget that He's surrounded by a devouring fire and a stormy tempest, that, that He is not like us. And so God calls us here to remember who He is. And He's doing that not because he wants to destroy us, but because he wants us to live lives that reflect his kindness and his grace and his mercy and his provision. But he delivers a stern warning to those who will persist in forgetting. I will tear you apart and there will be none to deliver. Reminds me of what many have said, the only rescue, refuge from the wrath of God is God himself. Maybe as we've walked through this psalm, you've, you've become more aware of a tendency towards formalism. Maybe even this morning you kind of went through the motions and thought, yeah, okay. Or hypocrisy. Why wouldn't we be among the ones that God tears apart. Because God tore Jesus apart instead of us. He was pleased to crush his perfect and beautiful son on the cross, making him to be sin who knew no sin, so that all our vain, sad, fruitless attempts to earn our way into God's presence could be forgiven forever. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. That's the reason we can gather every week and walk throughout this city or wherever we live and not fear being torn apart. Because we have one who is torn apart in our place. Who was judged in our stead. So, sobered and humbled, we arrive at the last verse. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What glorifies God? Thankful dependence. Humble obedience. We're in need. He gets the glory. How gracious of God to judge our worship. How kind to remind us of our ever-present desire to try to impress him as well as others. How good of him to point out all the ways that we seek to exalt ourselves <coughs> rather than him. And how merciful of God to remind us that he calls us together as the church every week not to glory in ourselves. We are nothings. We are nobodies deserving of judgment, deserving of wrath, 
They're now called God's chosen and dearly loved. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> and to remember and revel in and rehearse that salvation that is ours through the finished work of Christ and then to leave here set upon displaying the fruit of that revelation, that realization to all those we live with. We don't have to prove anything when we walk out these doors other than there is a great Savior and he has made himself known to us. His name is Jesus Christ. He's paid for all our sins, risen from the dead. He's one day coming back for the bride he redeemed. May God give us grace to apply these words to our heart for our eternal good and for his eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you. Fresh reasons to thank you for your kindness and your faithfulness and your goodness. You are the judge of our worship, but you are merciful and gracious. You see what we could never see. You know what we could never know. What we don't even know about ourselves. And yet you have made provision for us in every way. How often we have seen you provide again and again and again. And even if we are in need right now, which all of us are in different ways, but if we feel our need for you right now, you have said you can provide and that you are our provision and that you have provided for us to come to you with thankful, grateful hearts, acknowledging that you alone are worthy of our worship, you alone are worthy of our praise, and you are worthy of our lives. We thank you that we can say all these things through our glorious Savior, your precious Son, Jesus Christ. And it's his name we pray. Amen.